This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 10, The Battle of Marathon. Location. The city of Marathon is based on the east coast of the Attica Peninsula, which is the same peninsula where one can find the city of Athens. This area of the Balkan Peninsula would have certainly fallen into the Mycenaean sphere of influence during the second millennium BCE, not least of all because the Attica Peninsula was the closest mainland area to the well-populated and civilised Cycladic islands. The Mycenaeans would have certainly used the Attica Peninsula to develop a dominance over the Aegean Sea and its islands and neighbouring lands. As we all very well know by now, the Mycenaean culture near enough disappeared by 1100 BCE and we sometimes mention a race of people called the Dorians when supposing who may have supplanted the Mycenaeans living in the Balkan Peninsula. We tend to attribute the Peloponnese and the polis of Sparta as the place where the Dorians migrated to, if indeed they did. If we suppose that they did, then it may be that a people called the Ionians were displaced from the Peloponnese and migrated to Attica. And if this is the case, then it would support the theory that the ancient Athenians were Ionians, with no Dorian influence. But we are a very long way from confirming that. It's not surprising to state that we know very little about this region after 1100 BCE due to a lack of activity and a return to a very basic lifestyle. But the one thing that we can say about Attica is that it appears that a resurgence of an advanced society occurred here quicker than most other Greek lands. Athens seemed to be taking advantage of resurging trade links with people such as the Phoenicians and utilising the lands around the growing city for agriculture. The city of Marathon is said to have been part of a district called Tetrapolis, but this is according to later mythological texts. Certainly Marathon was an agricultural settlement dating back to Mycenaean times, so despite these mythological references, we can feel sure that Marathon was indeed there and in existence during the Greek Dark Ages. 
we can't really be sure exactly when Marathon and the rest of the lands of Attica came under the influence of Athens, but we know that they did, and we believe that most of the incorporation of these lands was complete by the end of the 7th century BCE. Marathon would have likely have had a good trade and agricultural industry of its own, and as a consequence it would have had desires and expectations of the central Athenian government. With all of the political reforms that were necessary to subdue the outlying lands of the Athenian polis, Marathon would enter the 5th century BCE as a healthy city within the Athenian polis. The Persians Let's pick up the story of the Persians who were one of the parties involved in the Battle of Marathon. The Persians were introduced to us during episodes 1 and 2 of this current volume. This was the age of the Achaemenids who were the Persian peoples who rose up against the rule of the Medes and took control of their empire from within. This happened in the middle of the 6th century BCE so around 60 years before the battle in question. The hero of the Achaemenids was a ruler known to us historically as Cyrus the Great. Cyrus would extend his influence over the lands of the Middle East. During his lifetime, he would extend his Achaemenid Empire to encapsulate the lands of the Babylonian Empire and the Lydian Kingdom. The importance of the Achaemenid takeover of the Lydian kingdom is that it would extend their influence over the whole of Anatolia and this would bring them into contact with peoples of Greek descent for the first time. Greek cultures, particularly the Ionians, had settlements on the west coast of Anatolia which overlooked the Aegean Sea. The Persian influence over these Anatolian Greek societies would require Cyrus the Great to install satraps, which from a Greek perspective may be referred to as tyrants. A satrap is a local leader of a region or a satrapy of the Persian Empire. A tyrant is an installed leader of a Greek cultured region who has not been politically elected by his peers. So these Greek cultures were now being ruled by a local leader who was loyal to the Persian Empire. In 522 BCE, Darius the Great would take control of the Achaemenid Persian Empire and would consolidate the rule over the new Egyptian and Libyan satrapies, as well as the island of Cyprus. After this, Darius would extend his influence beyond the Hellespont, which is a waterway that separates Asiatic Anatolia from the European mainland. There can be no doubt that the poles, or city-states as we may otherwise call them, of Greek lands would have learned of these Persian expansions towards their lands and would have had grave concerns about it. Although the Persians under Darius the Great were successful in establishing the subjugation of the Thracians who were based on the European side of the Hellespont, it does appear that the Persians did not press on any further into Greek territories. Indeed, 
This may not have been a priority as they already had command of the Hellespont, allowing them to create a satrapy on the Crimean Peninsula on the Black Sea. The Persians would have had a lot of work to do in keeping control of their vast empire on all of its fronts. By the end of the 6th century BCE, the size of the empire was nothing like the world had ever seen before and was the most dominant and likely the most feared and respected empire of the year 500 BCE. The Athenians The city of Athens has a deep history with its acropolis and proximity to the coast. It was a prime position for a settlement to emerge, so we can be confident of its existence going right back to the origins of proto-Greek cultures such as the Cycladic traders who predated Minoan and Mycenaean cultures. We can suggest that a settlement at Athens will date back at least 5,000 years. The emergence of what we understand to be an independent Athenian polis can be dated back to the aftermath of the late Bronze Age collapse, where an aristocratic dominant population were governed by a monarch or monarchs, who were supervised by a council called the Areopagus, which demonstrated something different from the styles of absolute monarchy which we are used to seeing from ancient kingdoms and empires. The monarchs were denied power by the elite class of society who actually ended up having multiple monarchs called archons who were deliberately and periodically elected by the aristocracy. There was nothing wrong with this. Athens became a wealthy and powerful city-state at the forefront of the Greek-speaking cultures of the Balkan Peninsula and the Aegean environment. The only true threat to Athenian power was from within, as those not in the aristocratic families of Athens had limited power or say, and they demanded more. This would not ordinarily be a problem, but in some neighbouring polis, citizens were successfully taking control of their polis and ruling as a tyrant ruler. To avoid the same fate, the Athenian aristocracy would begin ceding some of their political powers to the citizenry in a bid to stay in ultimate control of their polis. Political reforms in Athens seem to solve one problem and cause another, and whether it be the farmers or the traders or somebody else, there was often one aspect of Athenian society getting a rough deal, so despite aristocratic reforms, there was never really a time where Athens felt politically stable enough to ignore the threat of tyranny, and the day came when this would happen. The Pisistratids were a family who seized control of Athens as tyrant rulers, and attempted to rule more responsibly, enabling agriculture, artisanry and trade to flourish. However, this tyranny wouldn't last and an aristocratic family called the Alcmeonids would make an alliance with the Spartans from their rival polis on the Peloponnese and run the Pisistratids out of Athens. The man from the Alcmeonid family who would make the political reforms needed to stabilise Athens was 
Clisthenes. He would restructure the councils of Athens and the way in which people were elected to the council to be far more inclusive of all members of society with no favouritism towards any particular demographic either professionally or geographically. So it would therefore represent one of the most democratic societies the world had seen. This would be the condition of Athens entering into the 5th century BCE. Datis Rather disappointingly, we know very little of Datis, who was the military leader of the Persians entering into the conflict. We know that his background was the Median Satrapy of Persia, which was originally the dominant region of Persian lands before the rise of Cyrus the Great's Achaemenid Persians. Whether there was any foundation in the Persian Shah Darius deliberately selecting a Median military leader to put fear into the Greeks is debatable to say the very least. Herodotus mentions in his account of the battle that previous to this encounter, the sheer mention of the Medes would strike fear into the hearts of the Greeks. It is possible that Datis had more knowledge of the Greeks than some of his peers and it may have something to do with his experience as a naval man where he served as an admiral. Miltiades Miltiades was Datis's opposite number at the Battle of Marathon. Miltiades was the son of an Olympic champion. Kimon Kualimos was a prolific champion chariot racer who won the ancient Olympic event of Tethrypon. Initially, he won it in 536 BCE for the polis of Athens, before some political differences with the tyrant of Athens at the time, the well-known Pisistratus, saw him exiled. We can see that Kimon Kualimos also won the Tethrypon in 528 BCE, eight years after. But the one in the middle, in 532 BCE, is listed as being won by Pisistratus. But I suspect that it could have been the case that Kimon Kualimos actually won this race and dedicated it to Pisistratus so that he could return from exile. Herodotus wrote of an arrangement between the two parties. His victory in 528 BCE was around the time of the death of Pisistratus and it appears that Cimon Kualimos was ultimately murdered by Pisistratus's sons, Hipparchus and Hippias, who became the new Pisistratid tyrants in a very intriguing chapter of Greek characters. Cimon Kualimos had a son called Miltiades, and Miltiades prospered during the reign of the Athenian tyrant Hippias. This was the very same man who had been complicit in the murder of Miltiades's father, Cimon Coalimos. Miltiades became the eponymous archon of Athens before being put in charge of the Athenian colony of Thracian Chersonese which is the peninsula of land at the north of the Hellespont. 
drama would come all at once for both the Athenian tyrant Hippias and Miltiades. Hippias's brother Hipparchus was assassinated in 514 BCE and Hippias himself would be deposed by an alliance of the Alcmeonid Athenian aristocratic family and the Spartans in 510 BCE. Hippias would escape in the direction of Anatolia. However, this was an area now coming under the control of Darius's Achaemenid Persians, who in 513 BCE had taken control of Miltiades's Thracian Chersonese. Miltiades had come under the rule of Darius, but Miltiades seemed unable to pledge himself fully to the Persians and eventually had to flee his colony. Prelude to the Battle So now we have some background on the Achaemenid Persians and the Athenian Greeks, who were the two most notable parties in opposition to each other at the Battle of Marathon. The road to conflict between these two parties was a situation that was brewing up for some time and escalated significantly with the Ionian Revolt. The Ionian Revolt was something that we covered during episode 2 about the Achaemenid Persians. So we should now revisit that period and put it into the context of the battle itself which came after it. We should also follow the fortunes of the individuals that we have spoken of, such as Hippias and Miltiades, and track their actions and influence throughout this period. I have heard revisionist style theories trying to tell me that all of the texts from this period were written by Greeks, promoting a pro-Greek point of view about Persian aggression towards the Greeks and that there is another point of view suggesting that the lovely and orderly Persians were only trying to introduce their wonderful way of life to these disorganised rabble of city-states. Let's be totally clear here. The Achaemenid Persians were imperialistically ambitious and they had built the largest empire that the world had yet seen. The Achaemenids were evidently imperialistically aggressive in all directions, whether it be towards the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Scythians and the Indian kingdoms. The Achaemenid Persians under Darius the Great would have direct influence over the Greek peoples of the Anatolian Peninsula, including the Ionians, whose cities include the very well mentioned city of Miletus, which has featured time and time again since the episodes about the Minoans, the Mycenaeans and the Hittites. In order to keep the Greek societies of Anatolia obedient, the Achaemenids would install local tyrants to suppress any uprising or revolt and to collect the taxes of course. One such local tyrant was a man called Aristagoras and he was based in Miletus. In the year 500 BCE, the Cycladic island of Naxos, based in the Aegean Sea, expelled its aristocracy. As we are aware, it should come as no surprise to see any Greek cultured citizenry at odds with its own aristocracy. 
the aristocracy would approach Aristagoras in Miletus for help to take back control of Naxos, and Aristagoras agreed to help with the blessing of Darius the Great. Rebellion of any kind within the empire would not be healthy, especially if it was successful. Aristagoras's attempt to reinstate the Naxiot aristocracy by holding Naxos under siege in 499 BCE was a failure and Aristagoras was forced to switch his allegiance to the people of Naxos to avoid the wrath of Darius. Aristagoras would learn that many other Greek societies of the west coast of Anatolia were feeling tired of Achaemenid rule and were willing to join a revolt against the Achaemenid Empire. Aristagoras requested support from mainland Greek societies. Sparta refused to offer assistance, but Athens agreed to sending naval support. The revolt was initially successful with the Ionians successfully taking the city of Sardis the capital of the Persian satrapy of Lydia in 498 BCE, which would encourage more support for the revolt from Carians and Cypriots. Darius would hit back hard and begin taking control back of various cities who had been involved in revolting against the Achaemenids. This would force Aristagoras to flee to Thrace where he would be murdered by the Thracians. It may have been shortly after this time that the former Athenian archon Miltiades returned to Thracian Chersonese to support the ongoing Ionian revolt. Darius would send a naval fleet to defeat a coalition of the revolting societies in 494 BCE at the Battle of Ladi possibly led by Datis, the Median military leader. This devastating naval defeat allowed the Achaemenids to absolutely devastate the city of Miletus for its part in the rebellion. The Persians would then seemingly pick off the cities and islands that were involved in the Ionian revolt, including crossing the Hellespont into Thracian Chersonese, forcing Miltiades into exile once again. The Achaemenid Persians had crushed the revolt and were now planning on how to punish those Greek societies involved in the revolt, including the Athenians. Darius would instate a general called Mardonius to instate new tyrants to rule over the Greek societies of Ionia and prepare an assault on Athens. Mardonius would cross the Hellespont and subjugate the Thracians and Macedonians before being forced to retreat back to Anatolia. Things were beginning to look ominous for Athens. Datis would be put in control of the Achaemenid fleet which would cross the Aegean in anything from 3 to 600 triremes which are a type of galley which are sea vessels that although equipped with sails are primarily powered by oarsmen. As many as 10 or 20,000 Persian infantrymen were commissioned 
for the invasion, as well as a thousand horses for cavalry purposes. The Persians would have brought expert archers with them too. This was a huge problem for Athens. The Athenians may have only used horses as war vehicles as opposed to being used as cavalry in the way that the Persians did. There was no evidence of expert archery in Athens until later in the 5th century BCE. Not only this, but the Achaemenid Persians also had the expert knowledge of Athens from the man who had been exiled from Athens 20 years earlier, the Pisistratid tyrant Hippias, who was accompanying the expedition. The Athenian commander was a man called Callimachus, who was an Athelian polemarch, which is another word for a military commander. At his disposal were around 10 to 20,000 infantrymen, of which the majority were hoplites, armoured and trained to fight in phalanx formations. The Athenians at this point really couldn't decide what to do for the best. They knew the Persians were coming, and they knew that they were looking for vengeance, but they didn't know whether the solution would rely on military or diplomatic engagements. The writing was clearly on the wall when the Persian forces laid siege on the Euboean city of Eritrea, who played their part in supplying support to the Ionian revolt just a few years earlier. Athenian democracy would be tested to its limits here. The Ten Strategi, the generals of Athens, voted on whether to attack the Persians or not and they were undecided, which could have been a dangerous outcome. The casting vote came down to the polymarch Callimachus, who had to make an impossible decision. The city of Eritrea was sacked and burned by Datis. The men were killed, and the women and children were removed and taken back to Persia for a miserable life of slavery. One of the Athenian strategy was Miltiades, the same man who had once stood against the Persians as the tyrant of Thracian Chersonese during the Ionian revolt. It was Miltiades who convinced Callimachus that war was the right option for Athens now and Miltiades pledged to lead the effort himself. The Persians moved on from the island of Euboea, where they had destroyed the city of Eritrea, and they landed on the Attica Peninsula near the city of Marathon, where they would set up camp. The Athenians would call on their fellow Greek poles for assistance hoping that they saw enough of the threat in the Persians that they would view joining the Athenians as a protection of their own interests. A runner called Phidippides was sent to Sparta and the Spartans agreed to assist. But not until they finished their religious observance of the festival of Carnea, during which they avoided all military conflict.
the only known assistance to Athens was from the city of Plataea, who offered around a thousand infantrymen. Time was up now, however, and battle was imminent. The Battle of Marathon So the Achaemenids under the command of Datis had disembarked from their naval fleet and set up camp on the Attica Peninsula. The Athenians were heading across the Attica Peninsula from Athens in the west to Marathon in the east, now committed to the engagement. What happened next is the subject of debate, but it relates to the activity of the Achaemenids. It comes down to the mystery of the Achaemenid cavalry. We discussed earlier how the Achaemenid cavalry was a major advantage for the Achaemenids. The Athenians were more likely to use horses for transport and were not trained as cavalrymen who could use horsemanship to directly engage with an enemy in military conflict. So the Achaemenid cavalry was key. We can't be completely sure if the Achaemenid cavalry was dispatched on boats to circumnavigate the Attica Peninsula to attack the city of Athens directly. The counter-argument against this would be depictions of the Battle of Marathon on reliefs, particularly on the sides of 5th century BCE sarcophagi, clearly indicating horses which would suggest the presence of cavalry. The other suggestion is that the cavalry were camped separately from the infantry, so that when the Athenian commander Miltiades realised this, he saw an opportunity to exploit this lapse of concentration and take advantage of the situation. The other consideration that the Athenians had to take very seriously was the presence of highly skilled Achaemenid archers. So any sudden approach by the Athenians would very likely lead to the Achaemenid archers being deployed in an attempt to damage the advance as much as possible before the two sets of infantrymen engaged with each other. From a kilometre and a half away from the Achaemenid camp, Miltiades made his decision. A trumpet sounded and Miltiades cried, Rush at them! Waves of highly athletic Athenian hoplites advanced at speed across a kilometre and a half distance and as expected, the Achaemenids deployed their archers to take out as many hoplites as possible. If the hoplites compromised the amount of armour that they were wearing to enable them to advance with the speed of Olympic spirit, then this may have left them vulnerable to the waves of arrows being propelled towards them. However, the sheer speed of the advance was enough to ensure that the Achaemenid archers could not do enough damage before the two parties engaged directly. We have accounts of the Greek polymarch, Callimachus being involved in the battle. Miltiades allowed Callimachus to take command of the hoplites from within the battle and Callimachus is accredited with the tactical decision 
to weaken the central hoplite phalanxes in order to draw the Achaemenid infantry in. This would enable the two wings of the Athenian hoplite phalanxes to surround the majority of the Achaemenid army and attack them from three directions. There are even depictions of Callimachus engaging in direct one-on-one -on -one battle with the Achaemenid commander Datis. Although you would have to consider this to be perhaps unlikely, even though it is certainly not impossible. However, by this time it was clear that the Achaemenids had been caught by surprise and were on the back foot suffering insurmountable losses. Datis had to make the tough decision to order a complete retreat back to the naval fleet where they could flee to fight another day. The Athenians did not want the Achaemenids to return and realised that this was an opportunity to exact a crushing blow by pursuing the fleeing Achaemenids to send a clear message that they would be met by ruthless aggression if they ever returned. The hoplites would not only attack the fleeing infantry but also the naval fleet. An Athenian general called Kinagyrus is poetically described as pursuing the Achaemenid fleet and even after the Achaemenids chopped his hands off he would still be attacking them with his teeth like a rabid wild beast. The Greek polymarch Callimachus is also reported to have lost his life pursuing the Achaemenid fleet. However, this was a major victory for the Athenians regardless, with seven Achaemenid ships destroyed according to Herodotus. Other antiquitous writings describe how 6,400 Achaemenid Persians lost their lives compared to 192 Athenians and maybe 11 Plataeans, who if you remember were the other Greek polis to offer support to the cause when the Spartans decided to continue their religious observances before pledging support. If the Achaemenids considered taking their naval fleet around the Attica Peninsula to try to hold Athens under siege as a last desperate attempt to come away from the battle with some success, then it may have been the knowledge that the Spartans were approaching to finally offer support to the Greek cause that convinced Datis to call off the campaign and return to the Achaemenid homelands to take stock of the entire situation. The Battle of Marathon had been won by the Athenians and the Achaemenid advance had been halted. The Aftermath now it's already been a long, albeit fascinating episode, so we should now look to wrap things up and look at the impact of the battle on events and history. Marathon and the Attica Peninsula remained a part of the Athenian polis which survived the invasion by the Achaemenids. Miltiades, whose tactics had clearly won the day for the Athenians, would lead campaigns against those Greek island societies who were supportive of the Achaemenid invasion, and this was in 489 BCE, 
the year after the Battle of Marathon. However, despite the Achaemenid defeat at the battle, Achaemenid influence was still very strong and Miltiades' campaign was not successful. Despite all of his accolades and lifetime achievements, Miltiades was imprisoned by the Alcmeonids back in Athens, where he died most likely from a gangrenous wound sustained during the unsuccessful campaign. He was perhaps in his early 60s. If Miltiades didn't get treated as a hero by the Athenians, then the man who died, Callimachus, was. A statue of Nike, the Greek deity of victory, was erected at the Parthenon on the Acropolis of Athens in his honour. The Achaemenid commander Datis is reported by Herodotus to have escaped the battle, but other sources state that he was killed. We don't have any evidence of Datis doing anything after 490 BCE. The former Athenian tyrant Hippias, whose knowledge of Athens had likely been of great value to the Achaemenids, who he had switched allegiances to, is said to have survived the battle, but not the return journey after the battle. Some refer to the Battle of Marathon as the first and most important historic victory for Western democracy against Oriental dictatorship regimes as if it were an ideological victory that has resonated down through the ages of any Europe versus Asia conflicts, whether it be the Romans against the Persians or the Christians against the Muslims. For me, this is total rubbish. The event took place 2,500 years ago and it would be an isolated case of Athenian democracy that would ultimately disappear in favour of the imperial machine of Rome. So modern day Western societies cannot hold on to this as a victory for modern Western values in a vain bid for self-glorification. It was a military battle between two nations and was not based on the ideology of Athens in any way at all. The significance of the battle can be seen by looking much more closely at the context of the contemporary international affairs of the time. Firstly, the mighty Achaemenids had shown themselves to be beatable. Although there had been resistance to the Achaemenids in the past, such as during the Ionian Revolt, the Achaemenids always took back control. The Athenians must have feared for their very existence when the Achaemenids sacked the city of Eritrea. So to then claim a victory, and not even with the help of the most feared Greek army of the Spartans by their side, would be hugely significant in the minds of the individuals and the nations of the world at this time. The Achaemenid Emperor Darius the Great would have been furious about the missed opportunity to punish the Athenians for their part in the Ionian Revolt and would start drawing up plans for a second invasion and perhaps one that the Greek polis would be better prepared for. However, in 486 BCE, a political situation developed in the Egyptian satrapy of the Achaemenid Empire and this event would coincide with Darius' death 
before he could achieve any kind of second attack on the Athenians. So the threat of Darius would be gone. Earlier in the episode, we told the story of the runner called Pheidippides, who was sent from Athens to Sparta to request their help before the Battle of Marathon had begun. Mythology tells us that he was approached by the Greek god of nature called Pan, and that Pan asked Pheidippides why the Athenians did not honour Pan and Pheidippides told him that from now on they would. This would lead Pan to appear during the Battle of Marathon and strike fear into the hearts of the Achaemenids, forcing them to mindlessly flee in terror from the battlefield. The effect that Pan had on the Achaemenids would be called a panic in honour of the Greek god Pan and the word still exists with us to this day. As many sources readily remind us these days, the famous run of Pheidippides from Athens to Sparta and back again has been misconstrued as him running from the battlefield at Marathon back to Athens, 25 miles across the Attica Peninsula to declare victory of the Athenians before subsequently dropping dead, which led to the creation of the 25 mile plus Olympic running individual event called the Marathon Race. It was actually the Athenian army who quickly marched from Marathon to Athens in order to defend it against the potential Achaemenid siege. Next time we are going to see what happened when the Achaemenids ultimately did return to take revenge on the Athenians with a special look at the battles of Thermopylae and Salamis. So the Battle of Marathon, which turned out to be a marathon episode, but thank you so much for listening in. It's a fascinating story and it gets all the more better and uh, we're going to be telling the story of what happened afterwards Uh, during the second Persian invasion of Greece uh, next week and indeed the week after. So plenty more action and uh, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. So we're going to be spending um, quite some time in ancient Greece uh, now. Uh, I I believe at least the next 10 episodes we should be looking at uh, some of the key battles Um, Some of the um, conflicts that were dragged out somewhat, such as the Peloponnesian War and then the emergence of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BCE, that kind of thing. But then we also have to look at the cultures of Greece and and some of the individuals who were um, around during this very important time when Athens really reckoned itself quite a lot. So um, we've uh, already told many stories of Athens, but... Uh, Athenian arrogance if you like as a society uh, really starts coming to the fore and if anyone's going to dislike that it's probably going to be the Spartans but still we've got the Persians um, we're in the shadow of that attack so we've got to wrap that story up but plenty to do with the Greeks and then after that we're going to have a one-off special episode 
which has been commissioned by History of the World podcast Illuminati member Matty Yokimo, who's going to um, who's going to have the pleasure of having a History of the World podcast episode, especially on um, a you know a it's well what can I say? It's going to be a, a European royal family. Um, but I'm going to give some more clues later, so that's all I'm prepared to say for now. But then, um, if you want to commission your own episode, uh, then just simply all you have to do is accumulate donations to the podcast, and the podcast really uh, benefits from your funding. So if you go to the uh, podcast website, which is historyoftheworldpodcast.com, click on the Patreon link and make a monthly donation then you can qualify for all the benefits that um, I allow my uh, my patrons to benefit from to enjoy and um, anyone that does make a donation to the podcast will become a lifelong member of the history of the world podcast Illuminati of course if you're unable to make any financial contribution uh, please don't forget that you can still support the podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you listen to us. And uh, one of those places can be on Apple Podcasts. And each month we go through some of the crazy people that very kindly rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and read out their reviews. So we're going to head over and do that now. Uh, so first one's from Mark T.W. from United States of America who's put great, great podcast, keep up the great work, Chris. Obviously a big fan of the word great, but thank you very much. Uh, next, we've got John1120 from the United States of America, who put podcast review, love the podcast. I enjoy the way it is presented. Keep it up, Chris, you're doing great. God, that's it. That's the word of the week, that. Great, isn't it? Let's see if I can find some more. Uh, next one, uh, Ramp1950 from Canada has put Hidden Canadian. I don't, I don't know why he's put Hidden Canadian. Uh, but um, the bulk of his message is, but I'm currently hiding from the Canadian winter. Ah, oh, that's why, that's why he's hiding from the winter. Uh, I should read it first, shouldn't I, before making judgments. I'm currently hiding from the Canadian winter in my basement wood shop. I promised my wife to build some furniture this winter, and so far the best thing I've found is the history of the world. So many po- uh, topics, and all of them done so well. I find I have to shut a saw, sander, etc., to pay attention to something on the podcast. It's too good to miss any of it. Give it a listen, and you're going to be amazed at the stuff those ancient people got up to. Yeah, they didn't have to get up to some stuff. And I'm glad you shut off your saws and sanders when you're listening, because I'd hate to be distracting you and have you uh, saw your arm off or, or something like that. So... Uh, thank you very much, Hidden Canadian, Mr. Ramp1950. Uh, next one is from OG and GK from the United States of America, who's put uh, AAA, great show, highly recommended. Uh, then we've got Goat Boy from Australia, who's put awesome. If I'm not watching porn, I'll be listening to this podcast. They both keep me busy for hours. Keep up the good work, mate. I'm glad you're spending your life in, in such a constructive manner. Uh, goat boys but thank you very much for the review uh, then we've got SK Hernan from uh, United States of America who's put 5 star I like his uh, calming voice his accent and the audio quality is good in depth information but not overwhelming I find it very relaxing talking of um, audio quality 
Um, you may have noticed this week that there's been a, a lot of background noise going on, and and I can only apologise. It's a bit out of my control, actually. I've been broadcasting the podcast right in the thick of Storm Dennis, which has been battering the UK this weekend. We had Storm Kiara last weekend, and we've got Storm Dennis this weekend really having a go at us. So if you can hear some background noise, it's probably Storm Dennis going into one and trying to... Um, trying to blow my uh, my residence down so uh, apologies but anyway carrying on uh, Bimmer X from Canada has put well done the podcast besides Streamline Science he talks about bunch of other possibilities that's the stuff people like to hear we already had enough simple science that learned at grade 1 to 12 thanks your hard work sharing with us uh, so, but thank you everyone for all your reviews. I, I do enjoy reading them out, especially the Apple Podcast ones. There's something else. Um, but uh, once again, thank you very much. Well, I'm just going to wrap up now. Um, I have been sent some emails. I will read them next week. I don't really want this episode to keep going and going and going, so I'm going to cut off for this week. Uh, your emails, if you sent them, will be read next week. So don't worry too much about that. I'd also just like to quickly welcome a new member to the History of the World podcast Illuminati and his name is Jack Dolan. So thank you so much Jack Dolan for coming and joining the History of the World podcast Illuminati, making monthly contributions to the podcast, keeping us going and keeping the quality high. Anyway, that's it for this week. I'm going to let you all get off now. Next week, we're going to continue the dramatic story of the Greeks versus the Persians. So look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you very much. Have a great week, everybody. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.